0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Angie, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Sarah Schulwitz from the Peregrine Fund, And she works with the smallest falcon in North and South America, known as the American Kestrel. And I'm very excited to have her today. So hello, Sarah. Are you there?
0: Hi, Angie. I'm here.
1: Oh, welcome to All Creatures Podcast, and thank you for uh, spending your time with us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to chat with
1: you. Oh, we're really excited to learn a lot, too, about the American Kestrel, and you're going to Teach us and get us excited, and and for me this interview is extra special. It's it's almost full circle in the fact that when I was a young keeper at the zoo, the very first animal I got to train and work with was a little American kestrel male named Aramis, and he was injured in the wild, so he was brought and to the zoo and used for educational purposes, and he just stole my heart. And his little friend Diana was a female kestrel too. And, uh, the pair was just wonderful. And I'd like, even though I was the one quote unquote training them, I think they trained me <laughs> more and, uh, they got me really excited about birds of prey. And so, uh, I'm just welcome. I'm so glad to have you. And you're going to get all of us excited about birds of prey, especially the kestrel.
0: Awesome. I'm super excited. I'm actually watching a little male kestrel right outside my office window He just brought a mouse in to try to entice a female into the box that's right above my office. So that's pretty cool that we're chatting about kestrels and he's just displaying for me right
1: now. Oh, you just, I mean, you can't see, but the smile on my face is so big right now. That's just so cool. They, they, uh, there's, they really are neat little birds. And I, I was reading about how the male presents the female with presents.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's got a juicy looking mouse for her right
1: now. All right. All you boyfriends and husbands, listen up. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want juicy mice, but we'll set them <laughs> for flowers and candy, right? That's
0: absolutely right.
1: <laughs> okay. Wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Sarah, as she likes to be called, or I'll call her, <laughs> she's a research scientist at the Peregrine Fund. And the Peregrine Fund is world-renowned for their research, education, and conservation of birds of prey. And now, Sarah, can you give us a little background about yourself and where you're from? And have you always worked with animals or birds more specifically? Uh,
0: sure thing. So I grew up in North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina. And, you know, I, I wasn't particularly interested in birds at the time, but I was always playing outside. I was, you know, taking bike rides through the woods and playing uh, near the Eno River. Um, Eno River State Park ran right through my neighborhood. So I was really lucky to be exposed um, just to nature in general and a really beautiful outside setting. Um, so it wasn't until college, um, till I was in college, I had an internship with the Nature Conservancy, which kind of more uh, provided a more formal setting for me to learn more Mm -hmm. about uh, the biodiversity in my own state. I was leading public nature hikes in the
1: Appalachian Mountains,
0: and I just became... That sounds
1: like an amazing internship.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was incredible. Like, I just learned about all the plants along the trails from, you know, shrubs to, to tall and old, beautiful trees, and I got to share that information with people that were interested. And I just was super impressed by the biodiversity that existed within my own state. And so uh, at that time, I kind of shifted my focus. I was really interested in, in public health at that time, but I was just so impressed um, that I shifted my focus in college to focus coursework more on zoology and ecology and conservation side of biology. And so then after college, I took a number of field jobs and lab tech positions that prepared me to go to grad school to focus on uh, work with avian conservation.
1: So would you say you became more of a bird nerd in college then or after college? And I use that Uh, term very lovingly. I am a bird nerd. So
0: yes, I actually have a a Carolina blue shirt that says bird nerd. So it identifies me.
1: Oh, get (laughs) out of here. That's funny. Oh my goodness. I I
0: definitely developed my interest for birds at Kind of at the end of my college career, um, I had a professor, Haven Wiley, Dr. Wiley, who was just, he was amazing. He was super enthusiastic, incredibly knowledgeable, and he brought us students into the field several times throughout the semester and just gave us an amazing experience looking and, and watching and learning about birds in North Carolina. And so after that, that was kind of, you know, what what made me super into birds was whatever Dr. Wiley was really teaching. Um, oh, after, thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Wiley. It's always Absolutely. amazing to have, <laughs> yeah, to have those mentors. I, uh, mine was definitely Dr. Santemeyer after, after college at the zoo. So, uh, but yeah, Dr. Wiley, we thank you for getting, turning Sarah on these, uh, these amazing creatures and getting her excited, not only about birds themselves, but science too, it sounds like.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, my, my main focus is really conservation. So conservation mm-hmm. of species. We're in kind of a tough time right now uh, with the rate and magnitude of change that's going on on our planet and creating, you know, more stress for organisms. So I'm really focused on the conservation aspect and, you know, I, I enjoy working with birds kind of as my
1: focus taxa. And so, specifically for me, since I will be out in the job market here soon, how, how did you, how did you land such an amazing job with the Peregrine Fund and then end up focusing with the American Kestrel?
0: Yeah, so as I was finishing up my PhD, so I was in the position that you're in now, um, I was finishing up my, my you mean
1: You mean cry, crying every night and rolled <laughs> uh, up in a ball, yes. rocking back and forth? Oh, <laughs> uh,
0: yes. My husband now, boyfriend at the time, cooked every meal for me at that time. He kept the whole house clean. He was my rock during that time and um, yeah, yeah
1: was, no, I I it's pretty wild I, I joke with my husband that I'm saying well you deserve an honorary PhD and just holding down the fort basically uh-huh, because yeah absolutely. I mean I, I'll be at the computer and he'll like come brush my hair for me almost <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, I
0: know where you're at right now uh, okay so, so was, help me
1: out how, how did I get how did you how do you get from here yeah, to, to there <laughs>
0: so I was uh at my folks' house, and I was looking through the job boards. It was over Christmas vacation, looking through the job boards, and I found the perfect position that seemed almost like it was written for me. Um, the Peregrine wow. folks looking for an assistant director of the American Kestrel Partnership at the time, and they wanted someone who knew their birds and knew their conservation research, but that was also passionate about working with the public to inspire folks all over the continent. To get involved as citizen scientists by monitoring mm. American kestrels during the breeding season, and that you know I, I couldn't not apply for the job. And yeah, so it sounds here like the dream. Now.
1: The dream, yeah, the dream job with a, just an amazing organization that, like you said, hits all of the important aspects, not only the conservation, of course, but then the research and then the education and, and spreading the love through citizen science, which I'll, I'll definitely want you to expand on at some point in time to the listeners. Now, before we get any further, uh, for those that aren't familiar, would you be able to briefly describe or take your time? Cause I think it's a beautiful creature, but, <laughs> Briefly describe the kestrel, what it looks like, and uh, where it lives, and and also what it eats, and what does it mean to be a bird of prey.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so the American the American kestrel is a small and super colorful falcon. Uh, they're about the size of a blue jay. Mm -hmm. And American kestrel males have really beautiful slate blue wings and bright rusty orange on their backs and their tails and their heads. And the females are a more rufousy or rusty brown color with Mm -hmm. black barring all over their backs and their wings and their tail. And kestrels prefer open habitat, such as pasture and farmland or short short grass prairie. And they can be found kind of all over North America in these habitats. And you'll often see them perched on a power line um, or over a field. And kind of a telltale sign that you're looking at a kestrel is if you see it bobbing its tail or pumping its tail while it's sitting on those power lines, they'll do Mm -hmm. that often to stay balanced. And another really telltale sign is when you're watching them hunting. Oftentimes, kestrels will pause mid-flight and they'll hover right over mm. a, a fixed place over the ground. And uh, they're focusing their gaze on their small prey, which is far, far below. So they have to be very stabilized. And so this hovering behavior is typical of kestrels and you'll see them doing it often. Um, and so kestrels, uh, yeah, they, they tend to eat small rodents or insects, um, but they'll even take small reptiles and sometimes birds. And I've even read about kestrels who start to specialize on bats. So they have a wow. wide ranging diet, but their main prey items are rodents and insects.
1: Yeah, and they uh, are just, for, for me, and I could be wrong, you're the expert, but I think they're one of the most colorful birds of prey as far as their plumage with the the males having the blue to gray to brown to white and so i'm always a i'm always a sucker for a a, a pretty animal mm-hmm. a <laughs> pretty yeah, bird yeah
0: they're absolutely gorgeous they're a really charismatic falcon since they are so colorful
1: yeah yeah and then they're just and it sounds like too they're they're able to adapt to lots of different types of prey which make them birds of prey and so that's why they can be found, right, all over North America and, and some of South America too, right?
0: Yeah, they're fairly generalist in their diet. Um, and even though they do prefer open habitat, you know, that is also a fairly generalist kind of habitat. Uh, you know, we can have open habitat in Montana or all the way down in Florida. Um, and as long as kestrels have prey to hunt and they have abundant prey, then they can do pretty well in lots of different
1: habitats. Right. And for me, moving from uh, Michigan, the Midwest area to where there, I would often hear a kestrel vocalizations when I was out in the wild, out in forests. I was very pleasantly surprised when I moved to Florida. Uh, There's great, of course, there's tons of amazing bird viewing in Florida if you're a bird nerd. Um, But (laughs) I was very happy to hear the vocalization of a kestrel When I was down in Florida, I I guess I didn't realize that they ranged that far south, uh, not knowing much. And now, is the kestrel found in Florida the same one that's found out in the Pacific Northwest by you, or are there different subspecies?
0: Yeah, so there are 17 different subspecies of American kestrel. And uh, in Florida, you guys have, uh, your breeding kestrels at least, are a separate subspecies, which is really cool. They are Falcos barvarius polis in Florida. Um, the rest Beautiful. Of the, yeah, the rest <laughs> of the North American subspe- or subspecies is Falcos barvarius barvarius. Uh, okay. And throughout their range, uh, which is they breed from Alaska all the way down to Tierra del Fuego in southern South America. Um, so oh, wow. the subspecies, the 17 subspecies are distributed in different different
1: areas throughout that massive um, area wow that's yeah it's yeah they the the the, rain, the distance that they range is just really incredible and um i i've heard them here in florida however i i need to get new bin, binoculars too but i haven't actually been able to to find it or or see it, so I'm <gasps> I'm on the I'm on the lookout to knock it off my list.
0: <laughs> awesome, yep. Keep looking and send us some photos when you see you.
1: I will for sure. And can you touch upon the work you do to help uh, conserve the American kestrel? And for our listeners out there, what does an average day look like when you're working with the Peregrine Fund?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. American kestrels, as we were just touching on, can be found all over North and South America. Uh, however, their populations are declining in many places uh, and have been declining since at least the 1960s. And unfortunately, no one knows why. There have been mm-hmm. some studies that have looked into different hypotheses, but as scientists, we have yet to discover the causes or the cause of decline.
1: Which, um, sorry to interrupt, but that probably makes it really, if you don't know the cause of the decline, that probably makes it really hard to stop the decline.
0: Yes, it, it really does. So that is um, what our approach right now is. So we are in the process of trying to figure out why the birds are declining. Uh, before you can implement appropriate management uh, techniques, you have to know what you're trying to manage for. Mm-hmm. So. So the American Kestrel Partnership, which is a program of the Peregrine Fund, we work with professional and with citizen scientists all over the continent to start taking mm-hmm. steps to helping us understand what is going on. So our partners install and monitor nest boxes because kestrels will nest in these, you know, man-made or artificial nest boxes. And our partners report their findings back to us. So they're. Oh, cool. Yeah, and this network of citizen scientists and professional scientists are also able to provide genetic samples so that we can better understand uh, how populations relate to each other across space at the genetic level. And so that also, yeah, that can also help us figure out where different populations breed, where those populations go to winter and which migration routes they're taking to get there. And once we understand more about why kestrels are declining, then we'll have an informed community of kestrel enthusiasts and citizen scientists that can really help us implement these appropriate conservation measures once we determine what those appropriate measures are.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I think is really important. And maybe because you're not only the Peregrine Fund in general, but especially the American Kestrel Partnership that you work with, the way that you make hypothesis and utilize basically the scientific method to try to solve this problem, um, to figure it out, and then once you figure out the problem, you can figure out solutions to work around it or with it. Uh, Yeah, if you could maybe just explain uh, to listeners why scientific and evidence-based research is important to conserving not only the kestrel, but the numerous species that we talk about in the podcast that are in decline.
0: Sure. So, uh, again, so since we don't know what is causing the kestrel's to decline, we need researchers to continue working to uncover this mystery. Um, and mm-hmm. only, only when we know what is causing the decline can we actually implement conservation actions that will address these problems? And so,
1: yeah, it's like, yeah, you wouldn't want to go out there and say like, Oh, we, you know, we know it's for sure. I had pollution or uh, pesticides, let's say. And, and then, uh, you know, tell, okay, farmers don't use pesticides in this area or whatever it is. And then that not be the problem because that would cause a, big ruckus for no reason if that's not the problem
0: exactly if there's no evidence to support um, a hypothesis then it's a lot of uh, resources and energy that you're putting into actions that may not do anything Mm -hmm. and so one one way that I kind of like to talk about where we are in the conservation story of kestrels because a lot of people get really uneasy when we say we don't know why kestrels are declining Mm-hmm. So, if you can think back to the story of the peregrine falcon, there was a time when these birds were precipitously declining, and we mm-hmm. didn't know why. So, we knew, we identified a problem, they were declining, and then mm-hmm. we, and then the next, next step is to do research to figure out what is going on. And sure. once we... You know, we're able to dig in and learned that it was the pesticide DDT that was causing eggshell thinning. Mm-hmm. Then you're able to implement actions. So, government, government action and policy action. And the Peregrine Fund was able to also uh, work with the birds to propagate them in captivity and then re release them into the wild. And so, that stage of the conservation was the management and action stage and we got to a mm-hmm. point with you know people all over doing all of these different types of work where the peregrine falcon was able to recover and and that was really exciting so it's, it's these different stages of conservation all of which are necessary so with the kestrel we're in the early stages we know there's a problem we know they're declining But we don't know why, and so we need the research to focus on that aspect of the conservation story. Once we know why they're declining, then we can move on to the next stage of the conservation story and then eventually get, hopefully, to a place where they're not declining all over the continent. And
1: now, Dr. Sarah, do you have any... (laughs) Do you like that? (laughs) It's adorable. (laughs) uh, Awesome. Do you have any hypothesis, or hypotheses I suppose is a plural word of that you're investigating now? I don't know if you're allowed to go into your research and we'll make it brief for the listeners. I just do you have any ideas or things that you're checking into of why the kestrels are declining?
0: Yeah, so we <clears throat> we're starting to think that that there is potentially something going on either on the wintering grounds or in the migration uh, routes that may be causing increased adult mortality. Uh, so, okay. So that's where we're starting to, to get evidence that maybe something's happening
1: there. Okay. And and just for the listeners uh, and, and for myself too, kestrels, like a lot of birds, they spend the summer, the nice weather in the north, and then they fly south in the winter. Is that correct? So populations
0: actually range... Uh, you know, the birds, your birds in Florida uh, that are mm-hmm. breeding in Florida, they won't migrate away for the winter. They're a non-migratory population.
1: Um Right, because for all my northern friends, the winter down here in Florida is amazing. I did a lot. Of, I did a lot of Chicago winters. I I, I earned. I earned my Florida winters. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So the 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 Kestrels enjoy the winters just like you do. So they don't need to go anywhere. Um, but populations across the range are are mm-hmm. complicated. Okay. So some populations are fully migratory. The birds in Alaska oh. do not stay in Alaska to winter. Okay. But the population in Idaho is actually increasingly there are more and more overwinter residents, but we still have birds that are are migrants. So it is that's another complicating factor of figuring out this decline is that there's lots of of variation across the range, even in terms of their migratory behavior.
1: And do you speculate that some of that might be due to climate change, or is it too soon to tell? You
0: mean in terms of them changing their migratory behavior? Yes. Yeah, so we do think that climate change is impacting migratory behavior in some of these Western populations.
1: Interesting. Do you have anything else for hypothesis?
0: Some of our strongest research recommendations currently are for researchers to start focusing on overwinter survival and also Mm -hmm. survival throughout the whole annual cycle. So not just what's going on during the breeding season, but tracking birds throughout their whole annual cycle throughout breeding, migration, and winter. Another strong research recommendation that we have is for folks that are monitoring boxes during the breeding season is to incorporate mm-hmm. AKP's protocols into their research program. So folks may have you know, their own interest, um, research interest that um, applies to their local or regional research program, but it's also, since this is a continental scale problem, we need to take a continental scale approach to looking at the patterns across this massive geographic scale and so the akp has the you know has protocols that people can incorporate into their monitoring program that will give us that lens with people collecting data consistently across the
1: range. I think this might be a good time for you to touch on the citizen science programs that Peregrine Fund works with or that the American Kestrel Partnership works directly with and uh, and how that relates to your work or how somebody like myself could get involved in Florida.
0: Yeah, so the American Kestrel Partnership is the Peregrine Fund citizen science program. And again, it encourages folks that are monitoring boxes or that have boxes to become citizen scientists and collect data you know consistently according to a protocol the way scientists do and in that regard you don't have to have a PhD or a masters after your name to be a scientist you are a scientist by helping with this um, inquiry that that we have at the Peregrine Fund by collecting data um, and contributing cool. that to our massive data set.
1: And our scientists like myself with a degree still welcome? Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> We've got some of our, okay. you know, strongest partners are professional scientists at, at different universities across, across the country. We work really closely with Dr. Julie Heath and her lab at Boise State University. She is uh, the PI at, on the Kestrel Genoscape project. And so we work closely with her um, to try and gather samples um, from our AKP partners across the range that will contribute to her massive genetic study.
1: Awesome! And so if, if a listener are listening, hopefully through the whole episode, cause there's lots more fun questions coming up, but after the episode, if they were, how, how would they go about doing this? Would they just go to your website or would they, sure thing. Uh,
0: yeah, so We have a website. It's kestrel.peregrinefund.org, where people can Mm -hmm. read all about kestrel biology, read about the kestrel decline, and check out their own location, see if kestrels are declining where they live, Um, and then they can also read instructions on how to install and monitor a nest box, and they can sign up, become an AKP partner. And start contributing data according to our protocols, which they can also find on the website.
1: Oh my gosh, that sounds like the best plan. I'm totally going to do that. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. And
0: for folks that aren't so much interested in monitoring their own box, if they, if you just want to learn more about kestrels and see how fun and, and, and see how fun they are and how much they can teach you about raptor biology, we also stream a kestrel cam. Every year, um, we focus one camera on the outside of the box so you can always see when the male is delivering rodents for his female and his family. And then you can also, we also focus inside the box so you can watch. The nestlings hatch and get fed and all of the drama that occurs within the nest box. And that's also on our website.
1: I mean, honestly, that sounds so much better than the other reality shows that I sometimes <laughs> find myself watching. I won't even say which ones. <laughs> so, but, but in all seriousness, if I did put up a box and I have like a quarter acre backyard, is that enough room or do I need more land to do that?
0: Uh, I think a quarter acre might be good if you have rich habitat, if you don't have your cats outside and you don't have your dogs outside, or if you, once birds are uh, fledging, which is when they're leaving mm-hmm. the nest, if you, you know, supervise mm-hmm. your dogs to make sure they don't get a tasty snack, a kestrel snack. So, yeah, backyards are great places for boxes as long as um, some requirements are met, habitat
1: requirements. and Sure. Okay. Some precautions are taken. Wonderful. Well, with that being said, let's get our listeners excited about American kestrels and why they would want a box in their backyard, or maybe at a, uh, maybe you can convince a local farm. There's where I live. Uh, there's tons of e- uh, horse farms and lots of open land and fields. So I, I know if I can't get one in my backyard, I'm definitely going to get one at the horse farm where I ride. So. Um, But can you give us some fun facts about kestrels and what what makes you excited about them with either their behavior or some of the... The unique things that they do. Yeah.
0: So as we talked about how they are so distributed, uh, so widespread mm-hmm. across North and South America, I love that I can go to different places in the country and see see them. I can visit my uncle, and my aunt and uncle in Georgia, and I can see Kestrels hanging out in Southern Georgia, or I can see them on my way to work here in Boise, Idaho. So that's a really cool point of connection between people across an entire continent. You can see the same Falcon. Yeah. And then that is so cool. Um, one thing I just learned from my partner today is that apparently they are capable of digesting bone. And our partner, uh, she sent me a message and she said she was just fascinated by how there is uh, very little that you can get out of a kestrel pellet. As compared to when you mm-hmm. look through an owl pellet, which is always full of tiny little bones and teeth of their prey.
1: Oh, very cool! Yeah, when I was uh, reading about the kestrel, i I was pretty fascinated. My my son, my four year old, is really into like superheroes that can have special superpowers, and the the kestrel can see ultraviolet light. I, I thought that was. Pretty cool, because obviously humans can't see it, and what I was reading, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this helps the kestrels make out trails of urine from some of the predators, like voles that they'll chase after so, and catch.
0: Okay. Yeah, so, Is well, that- Angie, I'm going to... Um, unfortunately potentially burst your bubble here um uh, so that was a
1: study no that's okay i like science i like science so that was a study
0: that was on a separate kestrel species um and while they are related and while it's possible that study was also um kind of not supported in later studies
1: Ah, okay, sure, sure. Which is very all science should be repeatable, and you really and you yeah, it's, a, it's okay to report results, but as new results come in, or if it's not repeatable, then that needs to be cleared yeah. Up. So
0: that's something that we, you know we don't actively you know promote that idea, but it is it's a, oh, it gotcha. is a cool have to- idea. Um, it would <laughs> just need to be continued to be tested uh, to see if that holds. Sure, and I American think American kestrels.
1: Well, and I think that obviously that it sounds like the American kestrel is in need of, of a lot more important science, figuring out their migration patterns and their biology and their behavior. And we don't really, that's thats probably lower on the bucket list to figure that. Yeah. Out.
0: Unfortunately, we're in a, in a time of, you know, basic research is still very important, but we're also in a crisis, mm-hmm. you know, time of crisis for a lot of species where we need to Figure out what their population trends are doing, understand more about uh, what's going on in different parts of their life cycle to, you know, make sure that these species are, are sustainable in the future. Yeah,
1: definitely. And for me, obviously probably because I worked with the kestrel, one of their more iconic behaviors is the vocalizations that both the males and females make. And one of my favorite part of the interviews is to have you describe what, what the American Kestrel, what their vocalizations sound like, if you could. And I may, I may or may not then proceed to ask you if you (laughs) could maybe try it yourself or, or help or, or, or anything to help the listeners, uh, because no matter what, I want them to take home what a vocalization sounds like. So they, I mean, anybody listening in North, America or parts of South America should be able to hear this in the wild if they, if they spend enough time outdoors, yeah, hopefully. Absolutely. Hopefully.
0: So kestrels are, are pretty vocal. Um, you can often hear them before you'll see them. And, you know, they'll mm-hmm. they'll make calls while they're flying. They'll make calls um, when the male comes back to the box. He wants to let his female know that he's here and he's got a treat for her. So come on out of the box um, (laughs) and you can get it. Um, So they are very vocal. They'll also dive bomb researchers while um, we're banding their nestlings or they'll sit in a, you know, they'll sit above us and they'll, they'll scold us. Certainly.
1: Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. And so
0: they do, they make this, click 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 kind of alarm call but i'm going to uh, play it for you so that folks can can hear the calls
1: oh well uh, really really quick dr sarah what was that again how does it go
0: <laughs> i see we're, we're going here <laughs> so they do uh <laughs> click 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 and you'll hear it from
1: very you know, good from,
0: ooh, dozens of feet away maybe up to a hundred feet away even if you got good ears. Mm-hmm. And again they're they're vocal and they're feisty, they're small falcons, but they are feisty and they are not shy about defending their territory. So I'm gonna play a couple of calls. I'm playing this from the Sibley app of uh, to North American Birds. Um it's a really wonderful birding mm-hmm. app. And it's got all of the vocalizations, or it's got vocalizations for all of the birds that are within the Sibley Guide. So. so that is an alarm call, and that is what researchers will mm-hmm. hear often when they are Trying to monitor the
1: box. <laughs> um, before they exactly. get dive bomb. Or water, they get <laughs> dive
0: bomb. <laughs> but yes, and so here is the call of a male Kestrel. So you'll hear this call when the male is saying, Hey honey, I'm home. I've got something for you. So female will often pop out of the box and uh, and go see what he's got for her.
1: Well thank you, Doctor Sarah. You are a very, very good sport and your passion and love for the American crestrel, the fact that you'll uh, make vocalizations on my podcast <laughs> really is is amazing and greatly appreciated and and we'll I'll definitely have to download that app. What was it gonna what was it called again? It is the Sibley
0: Guide to North American Birds.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely be playing that one because I I love 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 my bird calls. So, and now throughout your uh, tenure with uh, the Peregrine Fund, do you have a favorite kestrel, or just in general, maybe throughout your graduate school that you worked with? <laughs>
0: Well, let's see. I We do have two kestrels up here at the World Center for Birds of Prey that are our education birds. We have our male, Mm -hmm. which is named Bob, and he's about nine years old. And we have our female kestrel, which is, she's only about a year old now, and her name is Penny. And they make a really nice pair. Um, You know, they inspire folks that come up to the visitor center to learn more about kestrels and they're just really great avian ambassadors and i also love that my office looks out to kind of the stomping grounds of our kestrel cam birds right above my office Mm -hmm. is our kestrel cam so i get kind of a front row seat to see what is going on uh throughout the the breeding season with this with this nest and it's really fun
1: oh that sounds like not only an office with a, a view but an office with an amazing yeah, view it, it really is <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm, I'm lucky to have it and i'm lucky to you know be able to watch the drama unfold for this guest of family
1: i know that i really want that box i <laughs> i can imagine the drama because too i was reading you can correct me if i'm wrong but that the males play a big part of the relationship like Besides presenting food to the females, but they also take a part in a lot of the parenting too, is that yeah, correct?
0: That's, that's absolutely correct. Um and on our Kestrel Cam, we actually have the um an ability for anybody who's logged in to tell us what they see and all of that information goes into a database and I'm analyzing it right now. And just from our Kestrel Cam, we can see that the male spends a significant amount of his time incubating the eggs. So while, cool. yeah, it's really cool. So the male will bring food to the female. He does a lot of the hunting. He'll bring food to mm-hmm. the female and the female will be the one to feed the, the nestlings. But um, the male is certainly an active and involved parent.
1: So cool. Oh, I just, I'm even more in love with them before I, uh, <laughs> than before, that's for sure. But to switch gears a little, uh, regarding their conservation status, w- what is the current population of American kestrels?
0: So let's see, while it is considered state threatened or endangered in a few of the Eastern States and in the Eastern States mm-hmm. is where we're seeing, well, we're seeing declines in different populations across, across the continent, but we're seeing some of the most severe declines um, in Eastern States. Uh, this is not yet an endangered species. Um and in fact it's you know it, with the population status or the population rates as they are now it's not going to be an endangered species anytime soon. Uh so
1: Well that's yes, wonderful it's news. Really good
0: news. Um and in fact in some parts of the country it can be very common. So when I drive to work I see at least three kestrels every single day which is fantastic. Uh, however, the persistence and the widespread nature of the decline is what's very concerning. So this is the most common okay. falcon species in North America. And unfortunately, in some areas, it is becoming rare. So, for example, in, Nor- in New England in northeastern U.S., mm-hmm. um, populations have declined by 90% since the 1960s.
1: Holy cow, mm-hmm. that's huge. Yeah. Can you comment on what pressures... The American kestrels are currently facing that, that you know of?
0: Yeah, so, you know, as we've talked about, we are looking into the causes of the, of these slow and steady and continuous declines. And again, we don't know exactly what it is. However, in general, species right now, especially in North America, are facing uh, pressures from habitat loss and habitat fragmentation and habitat degradation in general. Other pressures that species face are pollution and pesticides, making it either more difficult for them to breed successfully or causing mortality outright in some cases. And climate change is, you know, another pressure that is going to be increasing for some species mm-hmm. and for other species it may not pose such uh, a problem, but that's going to be something that we look at on a species by species basis.
1: Very good. Yeah. Uh, and of course myself, I'm a bird nerd. So I don't want to, I don't want to presume anything, but sounds like you're a bird got nerd shirt, too. And yeah. a lot of my friends, <laughs> got <laughs> you've got, got shirt the shirt. To uh, But for somebody that's maybe not as interested in uh, bird species or in birds of prey, what can we do or what would you say to get them excited about why we should learn more about the kestrel and help conserve them?
0: So, yeah, as I mentioned before, Angie, this is a common species and we want to keep it common. Uh, When kestrels are plentiful, they're able to serve an ecological function of keeping rodent populations at bay for example oh yeah recent research also provides evidence that they are a friend to the farmers uh, for example by scaring away fruit eating birds out of cherry and blueberry orchards and so you know for people that don't necessarily care about birds there are really strong economic reasons to keep these birds around and also to help maintain a functional ecosystem which is very important for you know maintaining healthy human societies is to have a healthy functioning ecosystem in which we are connected.
1: Awesome. No, I think that's I mean and that's so true because I think for instance with the peregrine example you spoke on earlier helping us learn more about why they were declining with the DDT help save a lot of other species too, they're being impacted by it. But also I think from a human perspective showed us it probably wasn't the best overall pesticide to be using in general. So for me, these birds almost represent, or at least their ecology that they're in is like the canary in the coal mine of like, if they're healthy and doing well, then that's a good sign that everything else is healthy. And yes, the fact that they are declining so rapidly is of concern. Uh, And I think too, that if uh, you're not a, to me, it seems like if you're probably not a fan of a kestrel or not really familiar with it, you just need to go onto your kestrel cam and check 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 out the drama that unfolds, and uh, and I think I think you'll fall in love. Yeah, pretty quickly. that's <laughs> absolutely right. They
0: pack a lot of punch into just you know four ounces of bird, and they've got a huge personality, and it's really fun to watch them.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, man! To this day, I still miss the Aramis Aww. and Diane <laughs> I, I used to work with. Yeah, they're really cool birds, good ambassador birds for education. That's awesome. <laughs> but and, and so, with with the conservation efforts, uh, not only for the American kestrel but other birds represented in the Peregrine Fund, or even more globally to animals with feathers or scales or fur alike, what do you do to help stay positive when sometimes there's setbacks and conservation efforts or with some of these species, not the Kestrel yet, thank goodness or anytime soon, but with the species that it, it, it is having so many setbacks or it just seems bleak. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to work for what I consider one of the best conservation organizations on the planet. Um, just last week we celebrated 90th birthday of Dr. Tom Cade. And Tom Cade and his colleagues founded the Peregrine Fund almost 50 years wow. ago in order to save the Peregrine Falcon from extinction in North America. Mm-hmm. And they did it. Uh, so like we've spoken about back in the 50s and 60s, population, populations of the Peregrine Falcon were precipitously declining, there were dive bombing, um, and they had actually disappeared west of the Rockies due to the eggshell thinning that we've talked about um, from the pesticide DDT. But it was the passion and the conservation efforts and all of the work um, from the Peregrine Fund and all of our colleagues and other stakeholders, so many people that were involved to ban the use of DDT in the United States and work to reestablish populations and so that effort really gives me hope and because of all of that work and because of that dedication the peregrine falcon was delisted because populations recovered
1: wow and that
0: is so powerful i know to me and that's
1: i know yeah. sarah i have like goosebumps from listening to you i mean i'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm familiar with the story but just, you know it's so true like there is a lot of hope out there and i really applaud your efforts, especially and the Peregrine Fund and all the work that they do because I think starting off a little ahead of the game with the American Kestrel and a lot of the other birds of prey represented by the Peregrine Fund, it's better to start the research and learning about how to conserve them and understanding their biology before it's too late. And and there's several examples of species, for instance like the Vaquita, where An amazing amount of research and effort and collaboration internationally is going in to save this animal, but there's less than 30 individuals, and most likely, I don't want to say there's no hope. It's gonna be, it's gonna be tough, and so I think that starting a little ahead of the game as far as learning about animals and notice using research to notice these pop in citizen science to to understand population trends and declines and then how to what the problems are and how to fix them is the best approach for sure because if you wait until it's if you wait until it's too late not every time but a lot of times it's going to be too late and and your organization is just really at the the forefront of giving so many bird species birds of prey a leg up on this battle right uh, a chance to survive and yeah, the Peregrine Fund, in my, in my opinion, their their mission and their goals and objectives are are just really, really critical to many species of birds. So I, I applaud you and your team, and I'm just so, so happy that I got to talk with you today and, and learn a lot more about the kestrel and get excited about the kestrel. I hope a lot of listeners do. And I think if people want to find out more about the not only the American Kestrel Partnership, but the Peregrine Fund... Uh, what's what is the uh, Facebook and or uh, website where more information can be found?
0: Absolutely. So we've got um, a, f- a Facebook page for both. We've got a the Peregrine Fund Facebook page and an American Kestrel Partnership Facebook page. But we also have our websites, which have tons of information on all of our projects. The Peregrine Fund's uh webpage is Peregrine Fund, that is p-e-r-e-g-r-i-n-e-f-u-n-d dot org. And our American Kestrel Partnership website, which has tons of information on how to get involved as a citizen scientist and become a partner, that is kestrel.peregrinefund.org. And I encourage folks to, to check us out if you're in Idaho or going to be driving through. We also have an amazing visitor center where people can interact with lots of different live birds, um, many of which we have projects um, around the world. And these birds are our avian ambassadors for these projects. Um, We've got a visitor center in Boise, Idaho at the World Center for Birds of Prey.
1: Awesome. Yeah, no, definitely Please, listeners, please check out the Facebook page and the website. And, of course, check out that Kestrel cam, uh, especially before you turn turn on any of that reality uh, TV stuff. (laughs) This is real life, and this is way better, right? Uh, The the Kestrels are not like paid wannabe actors. They're like really living uh, living their life. And, yeah, I just – and definitely I know I'm going to – I'm going to look into being a citizen scientist because I just love kestrels and I love the idea of putting a box up or helping uh, some local, some local boxes here be monitored in my neighborhood, and I highly recommend that everybody tries it at least once. Uh, it's it feels so good to get out in nature, like you had mentioned, Sarah, and 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 give back too at the same time, and collecting data for any you know if any younger kids, high schoolers, or uh, in, when you're in college, you know, be a citizen scientist. It looks good on your resume, and you learn a lot. You learn what you like and what you don't like. I know that's that's what helps uh, Sarah and I figure it out our paths, um, or at least, or at least what we, what we think we want to be when we grow up. Right. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. It's a great experience for And it's a great experience to connect with your community or your family. Um, we've got lots of folks that will take their grandkids out and monitor boxes, um, with that, you know, their the future generation, um, so it's a really fun activity, um, no matter what stage of life you're in.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Sarah Schulwitz. I so appreciate your time and your energy and your, your enthusiasm for Kestrels is contagious and I hope that you and I stay in touch too, because I, uh, I really appreciate this connection.
0: Absolutely. This is, this was so fun today. Thank you so much for um, including me on this.
1: This is just a delight. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you next time at All Creatures Podcast.